everybody. So back on the podcast, we have Dr. Mike Isertel. How you doing, Mike? Good, good. Uh, thanks for having me on, Dave. Yeah, for sure. So we last spoke, I want to say it was, it was like right before I started working with Steve Hall. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit as well. But that was, we started working together back in October. Um, and since then, I obviously see you continue to produce more and more content and all of that. And I'd say in the last, I don't know, few years even, like Renaissance periodization has really blown up and you, you seem to branch out more with who you talk to. Like I've seen you have, you know, the, uh, the podcast with Doug Bagnoli, a few of those, and then with Cassim, um, even Joel Seedman and, and all of that. And I'm just wondering if you, I think, and even uh, Greg, you said, right? So it's some people who, and I think it gets you more exposure, obviously, but it, it also gets different viewpoints out there. And I think that debate is good. Do you find that that was something that you had to almost force yourself to do a little bit? It was some people who you maybe disagree with their views or was it just kind of a natural, like, you know, I, I like to debate. I like to see these different viewpoints. I love to debate. There was no forcing at all. <laughs> I have to regularly force myself not to debate people. So that was just opening up the floodgates a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so it was really fun. And some of those things happened uh, kind of uh, very sporadically. So the Joel Seidman thing, Mark Bell just texted me out of the blue and he was like, Hey, we got Joel Seidman, like literally in the studio. Do you want to call in and debate him? I was like, uh, is he okay with that? He's yeah. like, yeah, why not? I was like, okay. Yeah. So I just did that pretty fast, but uh, the other ones were set up a little bit ahead of time. And then mostly the way these things happen is, you know, I'll say some things on the internet to have some of my views pretty public and, you know, about training and things like that. And then these other folks have uh, views about training that are difficult for people to reconcile maybe because they're irreconcilable. And so, you know, most people have a pretty decent grasp of intuitive philosophy and they sort of think, well, if one person that's, uh, you know, saying one thing and another person saying another thing, you know, we can't all be necessarily correct to the same degree or at least applied to the same space of the identical problems. So, so maybe one of these folks is uh, more correct than the other, or at the very least, we will learn a lot more nuance about the issue if both of them seem fairly uh you know in the know yeah and uh people kind of ask for it so I, I i never really go after anybody i'm not like messaging people and be like let's get a debate going i don't know if i've ever done that um but people will message you know rp and they'll message revive and they'll comment 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 say hey you know you should talk to xyz person um we did have to go after Greg but get him to debate me because he was not interested in debating anybody who had an insufficiently large YouTube presence because he was exclusively interested in raising his brand awareness. Right. So finally we got Omar Isouf. It's big enough for him and he hosted the debate. Right. Well, uh, I was, I was, so. when I remember, I was going to ask about that because at the time it was kind of a weird situation where I think people in, our like smaller community knew Greg Doucette and kind of knew your background, but people who were new to it, I think you had some issue there where people thought maybe you were being a little much like a jerk or something like that, right? There was some backlash there and you were like, well, hold on a minute. Like there was more to this story. So, and, and yeah. it seems like you guys have since had good interactions, but that's what I was going to ask is, does it, 
Do you find that you have to temper yourself at times, given that it's a public forum and some people are maybe new to your views? I would imagine the answer is yes. Like, you know, like there's probably an initial thought of like, you know, whatever direct thing you would want to say. And in some of these situations with such a large audience, you do have to temper what you say. I've debated a lot of people before I debated Greg. I've debated a lot of people after I debated Greg. And I usually use the same style. Um, and that is one of uh, open and congenial engagement and question asking, trying to get to the truth. I used an intentionally different style with Greg because he had made several videos criticizing me and my positions in a sort of like a personal way. You know, he was trying to insult me mm. and he never did it sort of face to face. He would just do it in YouTube videos. And I said, well, let's bring the shit face to face. So when we got face to face, I just decided to insult him for an hour and a half intellectually. Uh, most of the insults went considerably over his head. It doesn't it certainly at the time did not know much about what we were talking about. And it turns out, but uh, it did make me look mean, uh, accurate. I was intending to be mean. Um, it was really funny though, how many of the Greg Dissent supporters at the time were perfectly fine with him, you know, digging into people on his own channel and making fun of everyone and calling them stupid. But so all of a sudden they are like, you know, right. big Mike is or tell the bully straight to Greg's face. Them, it, it really is, uh, you know, so, so those folks I can understand because they're already fans of his folks coming in, not knowing what's what uh, clearly would side with him because he seemed to be the nicer guy of the two of us. Uh, right. He seemed to be more open-minded than I was, and I was definitely trying to drive something home. So I kind of looked like a dick, accurately, I, I might add. But they didn't know the, the sort of situation beforehand where I was on a few other podcasts being interviewed about his positions. I was very, very cordial and very kind. And he just replied to those videos, making his own videos, very uncordial and unkind. So I was like, oh, fuck it, let's just take it straight, straight to him. I did, and uh, that uh, people thought was mean. Uh, anyone who was up on the history had a very different opinion of that discussion. Yeah, sure. They thought that, that Greg had it coming. And I mean, on the technical points, I think I probably like, you know, was at least 10 to one in my favor. Um, so that was cool, but it turns out people just didn't like the mean guy thing. Sure. And so from then on, I figured, you know, if I'm going to be going after people that I think are not, but I think are saying things that are significantly false then I had better do it in the arguing to convince style, which I actually have videos about. And that is a style in which I'm just let people uh, explain their position. And I ask them pointed questions. And that eventually if the position is false, they get into holes they can't dig themselves out of. And that makes them look like they don't know things. And in fact, they don't. So, and if they can explain their position very well and find a grain of truth, I'm always uh, into being like, yeah, that's actually a really good point. So um, well, speaking uh, that's the, my preferred method of discussion. Sure. Like on, on the intellectual side of things, because I think you are seen as one of the intellectuals in the space. And I know this is people who are just here to learn about muscle gain. You know, it's, it's maybe a little off topic for them. But um, I, I do think people consider you as one of the intellectuals in the space. And I think it was, I, at least I saw somebody post about it recently. I believe it was a recent post of yours that you were talking about the evidence with IQ, and I believe you said that at one point you scored low on these tests, right? Were you diagnosed with ADHD? Am I, am I thinking this is accurate, folks? Okay. Correct. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting when you, you know, most of the research does show that IQ is, is a good measure of general intelligence and is a pretty sound test despite 
some people arguing with that. But am I correct that you were saying you were actually scoring low on these tests until you figured out how to kind of sort out the ADHD? Yeah, until I was properly medicated, mm. I was scoring very low. But it depends on how the test was administrated, um, or sorry, administered. If the test was, and when the test was administered verbally with no time limit, and I had some time to think, I was scoring above the genius cutoff. When the test was a time pressure test, uh, I was scoring just slightly above mentally retarded, and uh, which is, by the way, wow. a technical diagnosis. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was fun. And that's actually when my parents... So I, those tests were administered by a child psychologist. And, oh, so you were young. Uh, yeah, I was 14 years old. Mm. And okay. um, that's when they realized, oh, and they, they did some follow-up tests that were like, yeah, your, your son meets every criteria for having a profound lack of attention span. And then my parents asked if uh, there was any kind of therapy to do about it. And they said, yeah, yeah, some of it works okay, but really medication is a frontline treatment. It seems to work the best. Mm. My dad asked if they could just give me a placebo. Uh, and <laughs> my psychologist said that actually I, I wish, but that doesn't really work because uh, mm. it turns out there's actually something wrong with him. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like someone breaks their leg. Just give him a placebo crutch. Like, no, no, you need a real crutch. And your leg's right. actually broken. So once I was medicated, then I sort of lived up to my true intellectual potential. And that was really neat, real neat story. Yeah, um, no, so, I was totally unaware of that. But it, yeah, I, I'm much more familiar with the IQ literature than I am with the ADHD literature. I, I know there's a significant debate on that, but it seems like it is a real thing in a certain population. Um, have you? I'm just curious, have you noticed any tapering of effectiveness or is it kind of like in those situations, the person takes the medication, they're good for a long period of time, and then that's it? There's a very profound tapering. And the, the tapering and positive effect was concomitant with the incremental negative effects that I was experiencing. So uh, I was experiencing all the downsides of, so the medication I was taking was Adderall. And uh, eventually I was experiencing mostly depression, mild psychosis, uh, all sorts of not, not fun symptoms, uh, inability to think fluidly, all this other crazy stuff. Something you would see with like a long-term math addict. <laughs> okay. um, but it's very, very closely related compounds, so no surprise. And uh, in, in, in its positive attributes started to wear off for me. And that's, I was in college by then, and I had to quit the medication because it became untenable for me to continue to take it. Um, it was basically not really helping me in school anymore, but it was costing me a significant amount of psychological distress. So I was like, well, that, that's that. So I dropped out of school for a year and sort of uh, practiced doing work uh, that was incrementally more difficult without it. And by then, I think uh, through a combination of doing lots of schoolwork and meditation, but mostly I think through age-related brain maturation, which is I think the dominant way anyone who grows out of ADHD does so. It's just at some point the brain matures. It's technically uh, in some cases described as a developmental disorder because um, I think something like one-third of adults end up growing out of ADHD. They have it as children. They don't have it mm. as adults. I was lucky enough that was the case for me. So by the time that I went back to my undergraduate, my attention span wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It's probably bottom bottom third or something as opposed to bottom 20th as yeah, it was yeah. before. Uh, and then by graduate school, it was like maybe in the middle somewhere. And now it's probably up in the, you know, high middle. So you could probably, I better attention span to maybe 60% of adults and that's good enough for me. I just chunk yeah. my workout in uh, smaller increments. It seems to go quite fine. I do need a, a pretty 
distraction-free work environment still. Mm. So for example, if like people who go to coffee shops to work, I actually just can't relate to that at all. Not oh, yeah. uh, in a heartbeat. Yeah. I would just be like, holy fuck shit. Right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I said, I literally right. I'm in a basement. I just sit in the basement alone. <laughs> yeah. That's how I do all of my work. There's no sound. There's nothing to see. I've already seen all this before. And, and that's how I'm able to do a lot of deep work. So luckily I don't need the medication anymore, but yeah, to your, to your direct question, there's a profound tapering of effect. And uh, yeah, it didn't sort out well. Luckily it, it looks like I, outgrew it so yeah the people who can like can study in social circles or like you said coffee shops a thing i just i never related to that i mean i never was diagnosed with adhd i don't think i had it i certainly had a hard time focusing on things i'm not that interested in right obviously sure right? like most people uh but yeah i would basically put headphones in have a song on repeat like it's like a non lyrical song just something going and then that was it but I, I could never do this group studying or anything like that yeah well uh, you know you said you're familiar with the IQ literature um and that you said that there was some debate about ADHD I think most of the debate arises from the fact that most people misconstrue what a disorder is but for a few exceptions most mental disorders are not either have it or you don't most human behavioral traits lie in a normal distribution sure. and some are positive some are negative some ends of the spectrum are positive some are negative so you know, every human being has some degree of ability to maintain attention to a task. And it's just where you fall on that spectrum that, you know, there are some cutoffs in the, you know, uh, diagnostic manuals about what really counts as ADHD. But if you make it just above the cutoff, you're still faced with significant attention deficit problems in your everyday life. And you might not be candidate for medication, but a lot of those people self-medicate. And so it goes all the way from people who are very, very troubled in being able to maintain any kind of attention where I was for sure at some point in my life and my childhood, all the way up to people that are like hyper-focused eye laser people who can like at age six, you know, copy a whole math book verbatim. And you're like, what the hell? And a six-year-old is that? Right. right? Like, um, so do kids in school with perfect handwriting and letters and they, they do that. And I'm like, oh, that was never me. No. So it's, uh, you know, attention deficit disorder, to call something a disorder, you need a hard cutoff. And that's tough to do because it's a spectrum disorder, like almost every disorder. Um, yeah. as, as a matter of fact, schizophrenia is, is one of those. There's like schizoaffective disorder, which is like, you're not really quite schizophrenic, but you have a lot of really crazy ups and downs. You're prone to psychotic thinking every now and again. And you're all prone to, prone to psychotic thinking and, 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 and crazy thoughts. On occasion, it's just how often does that occur and all the way from you know, mild schizophrenia all the way to really intractably deep schizophrenia. So because it's a spectrum disorder like anything else, a lot of people can validly, to some extent, say, well, I feel like I have ADHD. Well, yeah, you know, like, it, it, can you imagine we did that for strength? You, you're diagnosed as weak. <laughs> like, well, what does that mean? You know, if you can, if you can deadlift, let's say, less than 135 as, a, as an adult male, we diagnose you as weak. Does that mean if you can deadlift 140, you're all of a sudden playing in the NFL and pro line? Like, no, not even close. Yeah, like, not yeah. even close. So it's one of those things where that, that we want this to be a binary world of either you have a, a diagnosis, you don't. Medication will work for you or it won't. You know, like college kids take Adderall because it helps everyone focus. Yeah. Um, it's just that some kids just don't need it. Um, uh, and some kids really, really need it. And you have to find out, you know, where the individual lies and see what combination of psychotherapy and medication and uh, sort of self-therapy is best for that person to just have a better time in life. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So a related topic that I think most of the audience would find interesting and depending on how much you're willing to go into it. So obviously at some point years ago you went the enhanced route and you're pretty open about it sure. do you feel right. like the cons of it and that could be physical or mental i mean obviously there are some 
some psychological effects as well. Just a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are they different than you expected, or would today's mic maybe debate Mike five years ago and say, hey, your thoughts on this are wrong. I've experienced X, Y, Z that you didn't think was going to happen, if that makes sense. It's hmm. a good question. Well, so definitely I didn't know everything I was getting myself into. But luckily I started at very low doses and worked my way up on an as-needed basis. So... I will say most of the side effects hit me much harder at the front end than I'm experiencing now. Um, some of them I didn't know were going to happen because they are described in the literature, but they're not very well promulgated. So, for example, uh, you know, anxiety is not something I was very familiar with. I wasn't a very high anxiety person. And for me, anabolics exacerbated my anxiety to such an extent that I had several, you could call low-grade panic attacks when I first got on within the first few months. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And then I just talked to a friend of mine and he was like, I could have told you that. I was like, well, shit, because I thought, you know, I thought I had legitimate health problems and all this other stuff. And it turns out I was just really freaking out. Yeah. And I, I just didn't know that that was going to happen. Um, the the anger stuff didn't hit me nearly as hard as it hits many other people. Also, I'm just not naturally a very angry person, so that was good. But then again, I'm not, not naturally very anxious, and the anxiety hit me super hard. Right. So I, I really wished ahead of time I would have known the mix of side effects that was going to happen to me. But then again, that sort of thing is not really possible to know outside of you know future you know genomic medicine advances. Because you really don't know how things are going to hit you because, you know, steroids have very different profile of side effects depending on the individual. For example, some people take all the steroids in the world and have a full head of hair. Uh, it's actually quite common. Most competitive bodybuilders have a full head of hair. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have a full head of hair when I started steroids. I sure as hell don't now. So, you know, that's different. Another thing is acne. You know, some people get crazy, insane acne that you're like, oh, my God, that's just not natural. You're like pimples that are the size of like your the tip of your thumb like like purple weird stuff and some people just don't get it like my acne had never really ever got that bad one of my friends had insane acne to the point where he couldn't even shave his back because it would all be blood and then uh that was a couple months into using and then a couple months later the acne completely went away and just never came back anywhere in his body wow. not like he stopped using he went up and down and cycled and introduced new compounds and all this sort of stuff it just kind of ran its course it was really weird so a lot of the side effects, uh, it's just you don't know. So, you know, if folks are interested in potentially using, what I tell them is like, like you're getting, definitely getting yourself into some shit. Now, kind of shit it is, you may not know. So be prepared. You have to be prepared for all the side effects, especially the psychological ones, because the physical side effects are kind of almost banal because they're obvious. When you go to the doctor and they're like, well, your blood pressure is too high. You know, that's not a mystery, right? Like, it's also a very easily solved problem with modern pharmacology blood lipids and stuff like that. Again, that's a very easy diagnostics test, but like rage, anxiety, restlessness, poor sleep, trippy thoughts, the psychological ones really come out of nowhere. And uh, very few people talk about them. It's some combination of it's weird to talk about that kind of stuff. And also I think some people are not very psychologically perceptive. So they may be experiencing a variety of psychological conditions which they don't even know i mean for a while i had super high anxiety using 
I just didn't even know that. Like I couldn't, you, someone would be like, Hey, are they increasing your anxiety? I'd be like, I don't think so. But in reality, I was lying awake at night thinking like my next heartbeat was going to be the, the last time my heartbeat or something is I was going to have a huge heart attack. So, oh, wow. Oops, 10 years later, it still hasn't happened. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is, it, it is very interesting. I think the, probably in the people you talk about, it's, it's known, but I think in general, the psychological side effects are not discussed nearly as much. And so it's actually a funny story. So I, I met somebody at the gym three years ago and her boyfriend, I had like met him too. Uh, and basically, you know, we were talking and like, I could tell the guy was enhanced and I just, I didn't say like, you know, your boyfriend's enhanced, but I, I was just kind of saying, well, you know, most people who compete at that level are, you know, generally they have to take something. And she was like, it would never do that. He's so what? all this stuff like that. Like just said, he would never do it. And anyway, so lo and behold, this guy becomes my patient <laughs> and like, like years later, two years later. And he, uh, he just like very openly tells me like, yeah, I was taking steroids and like all this stuff. And I'm, you know, just kind of chuckling and telling the story about how, and he was like, yeah, I eventually had to tell her and she was not happy about it, but he's been off for like two months. And he said like, he was really depressed on them, which I think is pretty common. Um, he was having a lot of anxiety and, uh, I, what I didn't want to tell him is he was saying he feels so much better, but he's, he's like two months off. And I went to, well, you know, there's a lot more to come probably in, in two months, you know, obviously the stuff can still be in your system and, you know, it, it could take a while depending on what you were taking. But um, just to speak on the, the psychological aspect, because he and, and his buddy were both taking it and had way like ups and downs with anxiety and things like that. So I don't hear that nearly talked about as much as like, oh, I'm going to get gyno, I'm going to lose my hair, or I'm going to get acne, you know? And there's another reason you don't hear much about it is because a lot of the reason you hear about the, so also you don't hear a ton about the um, deep health outcomes, you know, the atherosclerotic increase, uh, poor blood lipids, blood pressure. You don't hear that about, about that as much. So we've narrowed down what you do hear about a lot, which you just said is, you know, hair loss and, and gyno and acne. And the reason we hear about it is cosmetic effects is because they're obvious and they're on your body. And also the, a huge fraction of people talking about steroids on the internet don't do steroids. They're just morbidly curious young people mm. that are, some of them don't even lift weights. Some have just started lifting weights yep. and this is fast, fascinating. Right. And then, so they try to do this thing where they, they try to spot who's using drugs and who's not. And then they Google all the apparent signs. Right. Like how the hell do you tell if someone has high blood pressure? Doctors can't even tell that unless they put a cuff on you, unless you're like beat red or right, something right. like that. And <laughs> blood pressure is 200 over 120. But the uh, it's just like the cosmetic effects are top of mind because a lot of the people using them are, well, very shallow people that only care about the cosmetic effects. And if they can take some combination of drug therapies to cancel out the cosmetic effects, they don't even really care if they're dying on the inside. They don't have the psychological awareness to realize they're miserable. <laughs> as long as my hair is still on my body, I don't have gyno or pimples, I'm good to go. And because most people are either trying to spot steroid users or curious themselves about the cosmetic effects, that's the thing that gets you more you know, traction. Another thing is there's a lot of uh, writing and talking about the cosmetic effects because it's used uh, in high schools across the United States as a kind of a who's at risk kind of situation. You know, if, you know, what are they, what are they going to tell coaches? Hey, if your athletes are using steroids, you're going to see X, Y, Z. They're not going to be like, if your athlete is you know, low key anxious, how do you even tell that? Most people <laughs> right. can hide anxiety very well. Yeah. They're not going to say blood yeah, pressure because, you know, pretty anxious. right. For sure. First of all, you're like, well, everyone in my, my wrestling team is uh, definitely <laughs> you on steroids. An increase in libido, 
you know, they might be. Right. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like puberty takes care of all that anyway. Right. So it, it, you, you end up coming down to the obvious signs, uh, gyno, acne, although, you know, acne is something that occurs naturally in teenagers anyway. But, you know, if it's really extreme acne and then, you know, mood swings, that's what people kind of see. And, and funny enough, you know, uh, yes, uh, sometimes the response to steroid is mood swings. But if you dose and cycle properly, there are not really any swings as much as there's always shitty mood. <laughs> and how do you diagnose that? You know, how would you notice that? You never would. You'd be like, oh, Frank's been shitty the whole time I've known him. Like, well, he's been on gear the whole time, too. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of those effects are talked about versus the others. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, would you say that, because like one of the things I, I've said is my, the biggest temptation to me it would be that. I could progress again. It's not even just, I mean, don't get me wrong, like the 10 to 20 pounds of muscle, whatever would be nice, but it, it's like it, short term, you know, obviously it wouldn't last forever either, but just to have years of gain again, like that the most exciting part of lifting, at least to me was the progress two pounds here, five pounds there, et cetera. Um, but on the whole, I think you, I, you know, eventually you're at a place where you're stagnant unless you want to keep going up in dose. Do you think if you were to survey, you know, a hundred people who are enhanced, a hundred people who are not, that there would be differences in happiness or satisfaction? Or do you feel like it just, because to me, it, it, I feel like there probably would not be um, because I feel like ultimately you take the stuff, but you're still maybe unsatisfied. Yes, you're happy that maybe your arms are bigger, but maybe you're more critical of other things. I'm just curious, like if the end goal is to be more satisfied with one's physique, is it actually achieving that? Um. It's definitely different between different people. Some people get stuck on the hedonic treadmill real hard and, and they can't get off. And anytime they consider becoming satisfied, their brain reminds them of the fact that well, now's the new normal. So you just want more, more and you'll never be happy. That's definitely true for some people. For other people, myself included, the gains and the body composition changes definitely brought a significant degree of very deep happiness. And that's traded off with the fact that I was pharmacologically unable to experience much happiness at the time when I was seeing yeah. these gains. Yeah. Uh, I would have, you know, <laughs> liked, like my, my natty brain to have lived in that body for a little bit. Right. But um, I will say, you know, after, let's say, you know, your end of a fat loss phase or the beginning of a muscle gain phase when you're lean, get a big chest and tricep pump, pull off your shirt, hit a couple poses in the mirror, and you're like, God, I'll be damned if this is so fucking cool i mean my god it's just yeah. unbelievable you're like a superhero's body you're like i this is me i made this i look like a tank uh it's neat it's really neat and um i made sure you know when i started using i was already an adult human being capable of quite a bit of foresight and i made sure that all of the good things that happened to me with the help of anabolics that i was going to enjoy the shit out of them mm. So I enjoyed the strength increases. I enjoyed the size increases. I enjoyed the leanness. I enjoyed the food. I enjoyed everything. I'm getting close to the end of my journey. So my enjoyment isn't as high anymore, but uh, I sure got a lot out of it. Yeah. Now, was it ideal? No. I wish I could have grown all this muscle without the nasty psychological effects, without the nasty health effects which I made a decent uh, attempt at mitigating, but nonetheless, some of them still see through. Uh, so no, it wasn't awesome. It wasn't perfect, but I got some significant benefits out of it. And I really, I really can't say that 
you know, I'm just as dissatisfied with my body. As a matter of fact, I'm, I got at some point recently so satisfied with my body that uh, it's not apparent to me that I want to get much bigger. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm also at the point where my size is so extreme that it limits my daily life enjoyment. Um, at the bottom of a pull down, my shoulders are so big, I'm choking myself. So it's kind of weird. I'm like, oh, I, I don't know how the hell I'm going to get bigger than this. Yeah. Uh, literally impossible. And, um, you know, like I, can, I can't even touch the back of my neck anymore. Like mm. it's just bicep touches here and there's nothing else to go. Um, and... So my game is tailored to me being jacked. I was always jacked when I did jujitsu. I started when I was really big and strong. So it, it certainly affects it, but uh, I've used to, uh, I've used my coach and I have optimized that for me. Um, so while it does detract in some areas, it heavily benefits in others. I mean, like yeah. I'm very difficult to submit because I don't, where the hell is my neck? I don't know. Yeah. Good luck finding that thing. Um, but uh, you know, like just living life, um, sleeping i have to sleep on like five pillows because if i sleep regular without just one pillow parts of my body will fall asleep or cramp yeah. up it's like yeah nobody's i don't i got really lucky i only wow. have mild snoring if i'm sleeping on my uh, back and i don't really snore if i sleep on my side that's just straight up luck of the draw yeah really because most people my size most people significantly smaller than me have yeah. intense sleep apnea a bunch of my friends have it they sleep with the machines you know, at that point, you have to wonder, like, what the hell am I doing with myself? But I will say, like, I have gotten to a point where I've done enough posing in the mirror <laughs> and competition results. It's really close to my cup is really close to being full yeah. uh, with, uh, you know, pleasure of having modified my physique. And I'm almost done in that part of my journey. And uh, so, for example, if um, in the next two years, genomics advanced enough to reverse aging, which is actually likely um, that if it advanced even further to allow radical tissue specific anabolism with zero health consequences, like not, not steroidal pathways, right? Direct stimulation of mTOR. I probably wouldn't do it for most of my muscle groups because I'm just tired of being big. <laughs> being yeah. big sucks. Like everyone who's not big wants to be big and on your way to getting big, it's a whole lot of fun. Right. And for a while being big is sweet. Everyone stares at you everywhere you go. It's cool. But for me, that whole ego thing is just, it, it's, it fills up. So I'm, I'm kind of over it. I kind of, you know, anytime I'm walking in a tank top onto a plane, everyone's looking at like me like, like that. And I'm kind of at the point where I was, I just kind of want to blend in, mm -hmm. you know, I've had enough of being a freak. It, but, but, but that's the thing is I wouldn't be able to say that unless I lived it out. You right. know, it's like, it's like someone who travels the world a lot says, Oh, I'm, I love living back home again. You're like, shut up. I wish right. I could say that. I yeah, don't, right, you know, right. I've never seen any part of the world. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, this is certainly a flawed analogy, but it just what comes to mind is there's studies showing that people with kids are no happier than people without kids, right? And yet it's all these parents, oh, it's the best thing in my life and all this stuff. And I think while that average might be true, certainly there are people out there who are much happier because they always wanted to be a parent and now they are a parent. And if they were not a parent, it would really be upsetting for them. And some people really do not want to have kids, probably should not have kids. And if they were stuck with a kid, it would make them depressed or whatever in their life. So um, it's, I'm sure it's relative to the person. And maybe for somebody like you, it's like, hey, if I didn't get to maximize my potential here, it would actually be less satisfying, right? 100%. I love the kid analogy because even by itself, I think everything you said is true. Um, and that kind of at a glance comparison of two groups 
is is really does a disservice to the question because it, you know <laughs> it, you know there are also demonstrably people who have never had kids they tried and they couldn't do it and they're heartbroken yeah. forever they die heartbroken yeah. like you mean to tell me that you know averages do not apply necessarily to individuals yeah and you have to look at it on an individual basis and i think there's a spectrum of how much people want children ranging all the way from i would pay good money to never have them around me <laughs> all the way through yeah you know same same it's cool living life without kids cool living life with them all the way to i want 15 children around me at all times i love them i love them i love them yeah. and that really does depend on the person and if you say well you know the average person is just as happy without kids as with kids sweet you're fine to me the average person well that's a statistical <laughs> fiction right? right so right. and that average person does really exist somehow but that person is, uh, I think, you know, maybe a, maybe a third of the population. Yeah. The other third would rather not have children. The other third would want to have plenty of children. So it really is, you know, how will steroids affect me or will I uh, be happy if I get bigger? I think if getting bigger is something you really deeply wanted and then your experience with getting bigger aligns with what you thought it was going to be like, uh, then like I always had this idea that... Um, I wanted to be so big as to kind of run out of space on my body. I pretty much, I'm five, six, two fifty. I'm kind of there. It's sweet. And I've had enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, at this point I'm like, you know, the equivalent of like, you really wanted a, a Lamborghini and now you have to go to the grocery store in your Lamborghini. You're like, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I hate no. driving this thing. It's cool to go fast, but I don't want to go into a Walmart parking lot. It's annoying. The thing can't clear anything above a three inch thing. Like, get out of here. Give me a pickup truck or something. So, yeah, yeah, at the end of the day, it really is individual specific and and that there's tons of nuance there. Yeah. And and just as a final point, we do kind of function in hierarchies, right? And so if you're in the fitness zone and and like you're in the fitness world, it's probably important to you. So like, I wouldn't say, regardless of what size you are or what your physique is, you're going to be equally happy. Like I am genuinely more satisfied with my physique at 195 than 10 years ago when I was 170. Right. And I, you know, it's not going to happen, but if I had the same body fat at 215, I do genuinely feel like I would be more satisfied. Right. So it's just more to that point of what does that individual desire? And it is probably a little bit trite to just say, well, you know, it's all in your head and and you could be happy regardless. Like, sure. Some people do obsess about it way too much, no doubt. Uh, But I I do think there's something to be said for going after what's important in your own world. I will say that, please let me know if this is derailing the conversation too far, but there is still an abundance of people in the obesity space that say things like losing weight doesn't make you happier and you have to do self-work in order to become happy. That's statistically wrong on average because the literature confirms that people who lose weight on average from being obese and overweight to being less obese and overweight or to normal weight they become measurably happier. (laughs) It's just not night and day. It's like a really strong effect, but it's not like if you're clinically depressed and you just get into amazing shape, you might just now be like on the low end of normal, Yeah, yeah. but you won't be the happiest person in the world and no, it won't solve all of your problems, but on, and for some people, it doesn't help at all. For some people, it's even worse because that, you know, introverts, uh, you take an introverted female who is not uh, very interested in public displays of sexuality, but is currently obese. She loses weight. And then every idiot starts hitting on her. And she's like, ah, 
terrible, net negative. Those people are definitely there. But the majority of people who lose weight do experience market increases in life satisfaction, especially if they keep the weight off. And that's just something that we have to admit. But at the same time, it's really important to note that if you want to be as happy as possible and you're overweight, yes, give weight loss a shot. But also at the same time, and then much later on, do a lot of self-work, potentially go to therapy, maybe do just work by yourself and rearrange your life and your thinking and your habits in such a way as maximizes your personal effectiveness and your happiness. That's a big thing. And it is uh, really either complementary to weight loss or has nothing to do with it. And I think people are looking at this, it's such a, how do I say this best? such a simplistic and idealistic manner. You know, the people that are hopeful will be like, oh man, I'm just going to lose all this weight and everything's going to change. It's going to be amazing. Bullshit. It'll get a little better, but you got to do a lot of other stuff for things to get amazing. On the other hand, people who are just honestly, just super compassionate people and look at all the just cruel abuse fatter people take in society. They're the butt of all this jokes they've been made fun of their whole lives they're not like you know normatively sexually attractive to many people it's awful and i think people who are super compassionate you know say look fuck all these haters you don't have to lose weight and losing weight won't even make you happy it's like this fake it's it's almost like you know like you're a nerd and the kids that bully you are like well if you just weren't a nerd we wouldn't bully you. Like, no, you're not, you're not supposed to bully people no matter what they are, right? Yeah. So people are sad because they're overweight. A large part of that sadness comes from them just not being, not wanting to be overweight. Another part of that sadness comes from people being pieces of shit to them all the time. Sure. Like, that, that's a weird thing to think about. Like, well, if I just conform and lose all this weight, people <laughs> will stop picking on me. Like, yeah. that's awful. But at the same time, while it's super compassionate to caricature the world into the view of, oh, well, you shouldn't have to lose this weight and it won't make you happy. The result, the reality is nuanced. The reality is, again, for many people, probably most, losing a good amount of weight will make them happier, but that doesn't close the loop and it doesn't excuse the abuse they get from other people for when they were overweight. So it's in reality a little bit more complicated. And uh, I didn't say a lot more complicated, just a little. Yeah. It's just that for many people, even a little more complicated is a bridge too far and they're not interested in crossing it. So they're either one of the good guys and say, well, I health at every size and fat people can do it wrong. Or they're one of the bad guys and shut up and lose weight, baddie. It's just a willpower problem. Right, right. And the truth largely gets lost somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I definitely say I try to live in reality there. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very nice to say, well, it's only what's on the inside. Looks don't matter. You know, body type doesn't matter. Money doesn't matter. But, you know, <laughs> it's not the advice I would give to somebody if I'm actually trying to practically improve their <laughs> Earnest life. advice. Right. Right, right. right. Is that something you give advice to like someone who doesn't really have any problems and is age 13 and they're looking at you with wide eyes? Like, how does the world work? You're like, nah, money doesn't matter, kid. Like, that's not true. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you think money is everything, then you're going to be in a really dark place at some point with tons of money. And like, look at how many celebrities end up committing suicide. They have all the money in the world. Like, that certainly is something is missed in that, in that yeah. regard. And at the end of the day, it's, I think the, the advice generally is like, think for yourself. Take care of number one, make sure you are surrounding yourself with people and with habits and with lifestyle choices that are building some version of you and building some world around you that will eventually now and in the future be a foundation for the kind of life you want to live. 
And, and, and that may mean you do some complex things like simultaneously working on your inner self and losing weight and or gaining weight. And there's not really any wrong answers there. It's what is effective in your life, which is something the best, most qualified person to do that is yourself. And the second best is a really good therapist. So, yeah. you know, it's not, you know, banal life advice that you can put on the, the, the back of a coffee cup. You know, just be yourself. Like, does that mean we never train and try to improve? Like, that's nonsense. What does yeah. that mean? Like, can you imagine the advice of, uh, I remember getting this advice when I was young and interested in female attention. They're like, just be yourself. Like, you have no idea how obscene and politically incorrect <laughs> my mind is. I, I can never right. take that advice. I'll go to jail or something. Yeah, like, yeah. just tell that girl what you think about her. Like, really? For real? For real? No, <laughs> please. We could yeah. do better than that. Yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, this is now totally tangenting, but I have a number of patients who are therapists, social workers, like psychotherapists, whatever. And it seems like post COVID, that it's like shockingly rampant how many people are trying to get therapy and are not able to get therapy. Uh, it, it's, I guess, I mean, that makes sense post COVID, but yeah, it's just interesting. And I, I know like access to it can be difficult and there's different things online. I'll see advertisements for like better help, like all online things, but um, mm -hmm. it's just interesting how, and again, I don't know if there's one of those situations where sometimes you're just reporting more of it. But when I hear the statistics on depression and anxiety and mental health issues, even especially like college students, but even older, um, it's, it's shocking to me. Like I, some survey was like, a third of college students said that they had thought about killing themselves. I mean, just like rampant, especially post COVID. COVID did a number. I think one of the most underrated effects of COVID um, or underappreciated is another positive word, uh, maybe under discussed, was that uh, humans are even more social animals than dogs. <laughs> and you, most dogs, if you have a group full of people, uh, a, group, a, a group of people in one room of the house and your dog is sitting. If you move the group of people to another room, the dog almost always comes along and sits with them. People are, are even more social than that. People are really, really social animals. And if you isolate people from each other, oh my God, you have to be prepared for a lot of psychosocial distress. And simultaneously, not only are you isolating people, you're saying when you do interact with people, you have to see people more as like vectors of disease and right. less like people you can be around and hug and stuff like that. And that's tough, man. Like think yeah. about all the people to whom going to the bar with their friends and even meeting random strangers is like a great uplifting part of their life. Well, COVID zapped that shit away instantly. It was like lockdown, boom, it's gone. Why wouldn't we expect tons of psychological health problems to occur? It's kind of odd, at least in that respect and perhaps many others. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Mike, I have to talk to you about something because you lied to me, man. Last podcast, you lied to me. You said when I worked with Typical. Steve Hall, I was going to get all these new gains and I'm going to have to throw that clip in here. And you said, I'm going to take some desensitization period. I'm going to blow up. I'm pretty sure you quoted 10 pounds of new muscle gain. But uh, I said 15 pounds <laughs> within a week. <laughs> so Steve and I worked together for six months. And, uh, you know, I put out a whole video on it. Steve and I edited a whole podcast afterwards and, uh, I continue to be a, a fan of Steve. So, uh, but we both kind of agreed at least in the time period that we had, which was six months, we didn't really see any progress, meaning I was like 195. I had cut down to 180 and then he and I bulked me back up to 195 and we compared pictures skin folds, measurements, strength, I mean, everything. And it was more or less identical across the board, um, which, 
you know, some people were like, oh, I, this is, how could that be after, you know, doing all of these things, like, you know, twice the volume you were doing and twice the meals and, and all that. But I, I just say, look, like I've been training for 18 years, you know, I, I mean, what can we really expect? Now to me, it was fun, right? I mean, I really got to, I've obviously read about your methods and their methods plenty, but to really have, you know, the coach say, this is what you're doing week in, week out. Mm -hmm. You can regulate what I'm doing and all of that. It, you know, it just gave a deeper understanding of the method than I think I could have had just reading more and more about it. Um, two, it was great to break it up because I literally was doing the same routine for two years and I just go in, I do the same thing. It was very boring after a while. So it was just fun. And I think three, it also taught me that like, Hey, I can switch to, I can have more novelty in my training. And even though it personally didn't net me anything, I just find it more fun to not literally do the exact same exercise for the exact same weight for the exact same sets and reps years in a row. <laughs> so. did, you, did you find Did you find that it was also an interesting change of pace to be coached? So you didn't have to worry so much yourself about the design of the plan. You could just be an athlete and show up and do what was expected of you. I feel like that's uh, for many people, a very liberating experience. Cause if you coach yourself, like you wrote the plan mm -hmm. and you also have to motivate yourself and there's yeah. nobody to check in with. But if you have a coach who says, do this, you're all you got to show up, you show up and perform. Yeah. I like, I wouldn't say it made me like less concerned about it because my, my concerns over, do I have the perfect program probably stopped around year eight or nine, thankfully. Right. It wasn't like, you know, <laughs> okay. um, that's good. Some people never get over that. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but I, I mean, I told Steve, like he would send like a weekly check-in and I looked forward to it. Like, you know, it's in like a video and, and I would watch it and like, it, it was just, fun to talk with somebody like-minded about the training I'm doing. Um, and, and so I'd say the biggest difference was that new motivation. Now, obviously over six months that faded a little bit of like, okay, well, I'm not really seeing the results, but, and I'm, I wouldn't tell somebody, well, I was going to say, I wouldn't tell somebody to get coaching just for, for the motivation, but that's because I'm thinking of somebody like myself who would be doing it anyway. But if it's, if it's the motivation to do it versus not doing it, absolutely hire a coach, right? I mean, that's probably why most people actually do hire coaches, right? Cause they're not doing it without it. So, um, I guess I just wanted to hear, like, there's no answer here. It's not even really a question, but more just thoughts on like, hey, we went from three meals a day to five, intermittent fasting to eating all day, three times a week, I think I already said three times a uh, week training to five and probably double the volume. And, and my theory is just like, and I said this very clearly on the uh, video, I said, look, I'm not saying that what I do now with less volume and all this stuff would get me to the end result optimally. But now that I'm more or less there, I just think you're just banging against that genetic ceiling and, and you can try all this other stuff, but it's still, you can't change that ceiling, assuming it's an actual ceiling. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I've coached uh, many people through my career and choose my words carefully. Some of the most bittersweet coaching experiences were people in their so you've been training for 18 years sort of in a similar place to these folks they just got there differently these are people that were training quite hard for about five years and they were getting into their late 50s and they wanted to become very muscular and nothing i knew worked and we tried a lot of stuff and you know they hire you, you're supposed to be smart, you're a top coach or whatever. And they're pouring work 
into this program and dedication. And they get a pound of muscle out of it after a year or nothing. Mm -hmm. And to me, I didn't like to be involved in that sort of thing for any longer than I had to be because I wasn't going to take people's money any further than after I knew they had hit their essentially common, you know, genetic ceiling, taking age into account. Right. And I, I know that nobody really wants to admit that they've hit that point where outside of extreme pharmacological interventions, they're just not going to be gaining any more muscle but all of us have to come to that point at some point. And that's just the reality of life. And, you know, if Steve, if you were to work with Steve again and say, Hey, let's, let's repeat the plan. Let's do this thing. Do you, you know, do you think I could gain five or 10 pounds of muscle? And he'd say, yes, he would be in my view, with your voluntary approval, defrauding you of money. Not not technically fraud, but implicit fraud. Um, And and at some point, it's kind of like, like, you know, um, imagine in like, you know, dentistry practice or something, somebody clearly needs reconstructive jaw surgery, that they're coming to you and they're saying like, can you just move my teeth around with braces or whatever, such that I become beautiful (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's only so much you can say yes until like I've done all I can do. Yeah, no, that's like rest is yeah. a very different approach because it's just the, the, the jaw is sitting here and it needs to be, you know. So that's you know that is a real thing, and I've been in that situation with many folks. And as soon as we find out that that's likely the case, I just cut it to them straight. I say, check this out. Here's the reality: we can take you down to two times or three times a week lifting. You can have a much more flexible diet schedule. You can take on three or four different hobbies. You can travel around the world, play tennis and play golf. We don't have to be in here six days a week, yeah. leaning into the ground for what is what essentially amounts to be nothing at that point. And that's, I think, a reality that folks have to come to grips with. And uh, the tragic thing is they, they continue to perseverate for no reason with this like faint hope that something will click mm-hmm. and they'll all of a sudden become gigantic. Um there's another situation where people have only been training for several years, but very diligently, and they're still young. And it turns out their genetics just aren't that good. And a lot of times they're smart and they're hardworking and they follow all these people on YouTube or Instagram. And they're like, well, when am I going to get my 20 pounds of muscle? And the answer is like short of shooting trend into your eyeballs. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. And they're in this state. The, the, I think the proper response after giving it really, really due diligence and really trying to figure out where, you know, you could have some loopholes going on after doing that, you got to say, Hey, this is the reality. I'm not going to be the most jacked person alive. That's okay. I'm going to switch gears to do something fun and still stay fit, etc. The alternative choice is just to continue to perseverate on wild variations. Some of these people will be like, well, conventional training didn't work. I'm going to do ultra high volume or I'm going to do super low volume or, I mean, it's always this next stone they're going to turn over is going to have the big gains. Right. But to be honest, and Dave, you've been around enough Jack people and you've seen enough people get jacked over your life. So we could probably be like, look, if a year after you started lifting, you still look like Harry Potter and you're never going to be Mr. Olympia. And you may not even look like a very muscular person ever. 
And the research literature confirms this directly. You know, there's multiple studies lasting 12 to 16 weeks where some of the subjects, and this is only a sample size of 30 people, some of the subjects demonstrate either zero or negative hypertrophy. These are first timers. Can you imagine like asking the researcher, so how'd I do? How much muscle did I gain? He's like, good news, bad news. You're really good at math. Bad news is you'll never be good at bodybuilding. I mean, can you imagine like yeah. all you think all of us gained a ton of muscle in our first few months of lifting? And that's literally false. There are people who don't gain any muscle at all in their first few months of lifting. And like, look, you know, I'm no scientist or whatever, JK, but if you don't gain any muscle in your first 16 weeks and someone's like, Mike, I'll give you a million dollars drug-free to put 10 pounds of muscle on this guy's body, I'd be like, I'm not taking the deal. Yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to get all this magic from? You know what I mean? I think from, as somebody who, you know, I, I definitely was not a, in any way a non-responder, but, you know, certainly wasn't like a Jared Feather either. I, I think- yeah, I, If you are. Yeah, right. Um, I think there is a pride aspect when you make it so much of your life where it's very hard to accept it, but not even- for yourself, but almost because of, for others, if, if you care about that, which in reality is a lot of us do. Sure. So let's say you're working out five, six days a week, but you're not that impressive. It's very easy, let's say, for somebody who's super impressive to be like, well, you know, I maintain all this on two days a week, right? It's, it's like, because I can do that now. But if you haven't made like that much of progress, it kind of, you feel like you're quitting. And, and then also other people could say, oh, well, you're not that big well, because you work out three days a week. You got to work out six days a week. You know what I mean? Not obviously you're not going to sit there. Well, hold on. Let me wait 10 minutes while I explain. I already did that. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So it, I think, and that was a hard thing for me too, where it's like, okay, so I'm, I'm kind of accepting defeat in a way. And it's not, that's really not how it should be viewed, but I'm just saying like the mentality there. Um, but the other way that it should be looked at is like, imagine if, to maintain your peak, you had to do everything that got you to your peak. That would suck, right? Hey, for the rest of oh, your fuck. life, six <laughs> days a week, maybe double sessions, seven. A lot of people think that actually. <laughs> a lot of people do think that, you know, yeah. inaccurately. But I mean, honestly, I don't know too many people who have kind of done what I've done that have like almost experimented with like what happens if you do bring it down. You know, oh, I had one of my best cuts as far as muscle retention, and I did like four sets for arms per week and like eight sets for major muscle groups didn't lose anything you know i was eating like 1500 calories for an extended period of time didn't mm -hmm. lose it you know and, and it's like again it's liberating if you can kind of you know switch to that mindset and be like it would suck if i had to do everything i used to do to keep this you know eventually i just be like i don't know if i can do this with a family and, and all that anymore totally and i think it's uh, very easy to get caught up inside a social world and uh, fail to step outside of it for a second and realize how contextual and to put it frankly, outside of an internal passion for the thing, pointless some of your endeavors may be. I mean, can you imagine if aliens came to earth and I had to tell them what I do for a job? <laughs> it's insane. You know, like, I'm the equivalent, very, I think, good analogy is I am an expert in teaching people how to put ridiculous oversized spoilers in those dumbass lights below their supercars. That's it. Like, big muscles, you know, spoilers do make cars perform better, but big muscles in bodybuilding, they're not even about performance. 
we're all trying to look like alpha males, like fighters, like warriors. We didn't even train for fighting or warfare. Like, imagine meeting a guy, you sitting next to a guy on the plane who's like former Marine Recon or Delta Force. He's like, yeah, dedicate my life to becoming a warrior. You're like, I pretend to be one when I do a front double bicep. Right. What a ridiculous idea. We grow. You could argue an arbitrary tissue on our bodies. Like, what about bone building? There's some people like really big bones. You could be like, yeah, <laughs> bone Olympia is coming up. And you're like, well, that's about as useful as my <laughs> stupid muscle Olympia. Right? At the end of the day, like, can you imagine like explaining to Bill Gates or Elon Musk, like most important thing to me and any, any man is to get one more pound of muscle on their frame. Like, what the fuck are you out of your mind right. so some people because most of the people who are hard gainers they have so much more going for them They're brilliant musicians or they have you know a professional degree and a great career a great family and they're pissing away all this time trying to put another three pounds of muscle on their frame for what now if it means a lot to you and if you love doing it amazing welcome you're one of us right but you can tilt your perspective on the world. And if it's really a bummer to you that you didn't turn out to be the most muscular human ever, or even if you didn't turn out to be half as muscular as a bunch of people who just trained recreationally, I can, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, it does not fucking matter. And if anyone over the age of 15 is listening to this, girls don't care at all. Anyway, as a matter of fact, they think you're weird for being that jacked. Like, so that if nobody cares but you and your weird, creepy freak, you know, you ever see people, this is going to be a bit judgmental. You see people, you walk in the airport, come off all those like super black leather goth clothes and like 50 different piercings and face tattoo. Bro, that's us. Except <laughs> we're literally damaging our health to do that. <laughs> like, right, right. What the kind of crazy shit. So anytime you think like, man, I got to get big. Like, no, you don't. Not even close. Yeah. Not even a little bit. You can be nothing to do with fitness. Just be relatively healthy enough to do live your great life and have your hobbies. That's all you need to do. So anytime people get really caught up in like, oh shit, this hypertrophy didn't work out. I'm a failure. A failure? What? We're a clown fucking sport. What are yeah. you talking about? Well, I, and I, I'm I, in the sport. That's my whole life. <laughs> right, right. And I, I, of course, I mean, I agree with it for the most part. I think that also, yes, maybe at like a professional, professional level, it can consume everything. But for the most part, I do think a lot of people just use it as an excuse, right? I, I mean, how many high achieving, like in life, bodybuilder? I mean, look at you, right? I look at other people who are doing a lot with their life while more or less maximizing progress. I, I mean, if you can't get to basically your genetic ceiling with, I don't know, six to eight hours per week in the gym. And I think maybe even less than that, you might disagree, but something like that per week, at least close. Right. Right. And you know, you got to eat anyway. So is it really that much harder to, I just don't think it should take up that much time. And I'm, I'm somewhat scorned from so many friends over the years telling me like, they just don't have time. And I'm like, how can you not have time? Like, even when I was in dental school and I had a job, I was still lifting four days a week and doing cardio and eating. Like I just, I don't have a lot of sympathy, I guess, when people just say it's got to be my whole life or that's it. Uh, so <laughs> where, where to begin with those people? First of all, their, their main statement is empirically false. Like it doesn't actually have to be your whole life for, for you to get great gains. And for many of those people, when they haven't even tried it, they would could eat one meal a day and train twice a week and still get massive gains if they're the average person. So already that's really false. And to your point, you can make unbelievably impressive gains and have an amazing physique training three or four hours per week, three or four sessions at a time, and eating like, gee, I'll, I'll give you even some bonus points. 
three meals a day with an extra protein shake after your workout. Crazy, I know. What a psychotic thing to commit yourself to. And, 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 you know, there are people in this world that do not have a spare three or four hours. I'll let you know who they are. Navy SEALs, Elon Musk. I think that's it. Seriously. <laughs> like, come on. The thing is, we all know it's BS because I'm sure you've had more than your fair share of water cooler conversations with people to where they, uh, you never asked, but they tell you how busy they are and why they can't uh, commit to weight training like you do. And it's always like you you don't even want to ever call them on their bullshit because it's so obvious. It's like if a if a ten year old kid tells you like, Hey mister, I can fly and I'm Superman, you're like, you know, kid, you're the shit. You keep doing it. <laughs> you're never like, hey kid, that's literally false. I could throw you off a building and you're gonna die. Watch this. So a lot of people are like, Well, you know, I got wife and kids and the dog and this and that. And you're like, uh-huh. Uh uh-huh. uh and you realize they watch like eighteen hours of fishing shows per week. And you're like, dude, <laughs> yeah, the way no, what you really mean is I don't want to trade off the other things that I'm doing to do yeah. weight training and and then hey cool, hey, right. cool. but when right. they complain about it it's kind of weird because you're like none of that is true like stop but it's about polite to say that so you just kind of nod your head how much head nodding have you done in your life to be told you not at first it, it took me until like five to seven years in and i was like you're just wrong i gotta show it like yes oh yeah but uh eventually i was just like oh okay cool yeah, because because oh. what are you going to say? How many people did you tell? No, you're wrong, and you can't actually do it. And they just sort of the conversation takes on a, a negative tenor, and then they don't talk to you anymore for yeah, a little while. Right, and they're right. like, "Well, you just don't know my life." <laughs> and they walk out, and you're like, "I don't think I'm accomplishing anything." And at the end of the day, I think like people have this thing with trained people who are obviously jacked. I get this on airplanes a lot. Mm. As soon as people start talking to me, a, a large fraction of them are, start making excuses for why they don't work out. And I like very quickly and comedically cut them off and be like, I, I don't say I don't care, but I essentially the, 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 the I drive point, the, the point home, I don't care. Yeah. And, and I don't care at a very deep level to where I don't judge you as a human being right. based on how much you do or do not work out. It's an insane metric to judge someone on, but yeah. they feel it's almost like we're priests and they're right. kind of like, hey, I've, <laughs> I've sinned in my life. And the priest is like, I'm off duty right now. You're totally yeah. fine. Between God and I, you're good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. there's definitely that dynamic as well. So, uh, Mike, I have one question for you here. Um, I like that most of our conversation is just flowing and not like a typical, like question, answer, question, answer. So this is the one sure. question I have. Uh, and that's something that I, I've seen a lot that you look at some of these studies and I understand, obviously there's a million limitations to studies, but we'll see. Okay. So, you know, volume is the you know best predictor of hypertrophy. And then we'll see a study that compares, uh, like rest pause and traditional sets. And then we'll see drop sets versus traditional sets versus rest balls. And they kind of all, at least as far as I've seen, more or less show the same results. And then I think, well, if you're drop setting and, and you're going weight, like inherently you would assume that that's going to net less volume. And certainly if you're rest pausing three sets where, you know, you may be resting 20 seconds or whatever between them, you're going to, again, have significantly less volume. Uh, and, and for me, I, when I have gone to like for my, I have one work that I do at home and for efficiency, I rest pause everything, never notice an issue, but I've already established. I'm not the best gauge for that because I could clearly do suboptimal things and, and kind of maintain. So I'm just curious when you see that, is it just kind of like a blanket? Well, studies have limitations or do you have an explanation of like, how can all of these methods that have considerably different volumes at the end of the study net pretty much identical results? Oh, uh, so I, 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 
you know, potentially a different conversation. I would like to see the studies you're citing directly so we can examine the volumes directly. Yeah. And some of those, the volumes actually end up being quite similar. Another thing is you can compare relative efforts. So for example, if in a non-rest paused situation, you did three sets of 10 and you approached failure three times in a rest pause situation, you essentially approached failure six times during that same amount of volume or even less volume the average relative effort, how much went into the workout was much higher for the rest. You know, rest pauses are brutal. <laughs> yeah. Like I would rather not be doing these, but here I am. So you kind what of get like effective reps kind of. Effective reps concept, but it's not a mystical concept. You just, you, you're putting out, you're recruiting faster fibers more significantly. You're doing fewer what are called lead-in reps and more reps that are close to failure, more effective reps or relatively more effective reps. You're also... Um, end up creating a whole lot more metabolites, which have been uh, study after study directly mechanistically tied to growth. So like, you know, if you do straight sets and someone's like, how's the burn? You're like, I don't know, two reps at the end, I got to burn. Rest pause. So how's the burn? You're like, I'm going to throw up now. I can't talk. <laughs> like yeah. that's how bad the burn is. At the end of the day, there seems to be this thing where what grows muscles the most is uh, locally very difficult things, proximity to failure, amount of work that is close to failure, high degree of metabolites, or you don't have to do that. You could just surmount insanely high tension, like sets of five will also grow tons of muscle, but that you physically feel them ripping your muscles apart while you're doing them. And it's sort of like there's a certain amount of hard work slash discomfort that you can spread out in any way you like, but the total sum of that close to failure metabolite or far from failure, ultra heavy any combination of those that lead to the same amount of misery generally lead to training intelligently. <laughs> it, it's like choose your choose your misery, right? Yeah. It, it's kind of like, you know, uh, who's going to get bigger? A person that has two helpings of chicken and one helping of mashed potatoes or two helpings of mashed potatoes and one helping of chicken, uh, you know, whatever, like uh, back to front, Who, who's going to get bigger? Well, if the helpings of mashed potato and the chickens are the same calories, actually both people are going to get the same size. And as long as they're both meeting their protein targets minimally, which we assume one chicken guy is also from other meals of the day, you're, you're going to see almost no difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, of course, it's the same amount of food. So, you know, volume compared on a straight mathematical relationship isn't as predictive of growth as the number of hard sets. Yeah. And when you get into the definition of what a hard set really is, uh, you, you learn that there is something like a hard set, but there's also counting it as the number of approaches very close to failure. You can even do it mathematically as the amount of area under the curve of metabolite generated, area under the curve of tension produced by the requisite fibers. And you can produce a ton of tension and very low metabolites, or you can produce less tension and a shitload of metabolites. Either way, depending on what path we use, that hypertrophy result is rather the same. And I'll bring this back around to ask that person, hey, what's easier? Three sets of 10 straight or one mega drop set? And they're like, man, I don't know. They both different kinds of suck. Yeah. Hey, well, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, same amount of growth, roughly speaking. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I just, to me, and you're, and you're right, there are some studies that do show very similar volume, but I, I know I've seen some that do show significantly different volume. Um, but I, I agree. I, I really don't. I think total volume is just over, overly simplified. And that it's funny, that workout I do, it's basically like a DC style rest pause. So, mm -hmm. you know, they say 15 breaths. In my experience, it's about 40 seconds. Uh, mentally that workout sucks. It's my fastest workout, but it's Ooh. like, it's just cause it feels like one set, you know, even though it's really like three, it's like going into that. And I'm just like, 
all right, I need to get ready. Cause this isn't just a 10 rep, yes. this is like 30 reps. And I'm just torturing myself for like four can, minutes. Yeah. Can you imagine if you sort of not misspoke, but you left out some details and you were like, well, I have a really short workout I do that works really well. And your friends are like, yeah, yeah, great. We're going to go to the beach in 30 minutes. Just go do your workout now. You're like, oh, hold on a sec. Yeah. Uh, fix your hat on your head. Like, oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can do this. It's a, you got to pay the price some other way. It, it, it's almost similar to when people start, talk about anabolic steroids, they say, well, you know, if you're, if you're taking steroids, then you don't have to train as hard and you get the same results. And then they say, well, if you're taking steroids, you can train harder and get even better results. Well, both of those are true because they're, they're kind of summative effects and they potentiate each other. So just the same way, you can do easier sets on average because if you measure the hardness of a set and how many of the reps feel miserable. If you're doing a straight set of 10, the last three or four feel miserable, right? The first couple are just kind of just grooving, right? Can you imagine if you could get amazing muscle growth with only the first five reps of a set of 10? Oh my God, it would be unbelievable. I would stop every time at five and be like, easy, <laughs> easy work. Yeah, the right. thing is, if you count you know, how difficult the reps are, how much metabolite they secrete, how much faster fiber recruitment they initiate, what you end up doing is saying, how much hardness did I experience in this workout? If it's three sets of 10, 15 reps of hardness. If it's a crazy 15 rep drop set, 15 reps of hardness. That is similar to the effective reps concept, which has a little bit of a limit, but it does have that bit of truth there. Where because you know, the effective rest concept makes a, a few more claims about how that happens, but there's some metabolite effects, there's this and that. And at the end of the day, you say, Well, now hold on a second, we can do sets of five, just heavy. Well, well, then you have to deal with the misery if all the reps are still very hard. Yeah. So, how hard your workout is locally to the muscle is still what causes muscle growth. And that way, you can do a lot of sets and only part of them are hard, or you can do fewer sets and they're brutal as shit. There are some stimulus and fatigue dynamics that are interesting. There is a way to get optimal, especially per muscle group and per individual. Some muscles just are not conducive to one or the other, so you have to choose wisely. Like, how do you do a drop set for back? I don't know. I still haven't figured it out. You mm. after you know bent row, you're going to bent row again after 30 seconds. No way, your lower back's going to give out. It's never going to work. But tricep extensions, amazing, super easy. So it, yeah, at the end of the day, volume equivalency has to mean volume of difficult work that's challenging. At the end of the day, the drop set stuff and the straight set stuff, if you uh, do an equivalency on difficult volume, yeah, it's about the same. With your permission, I'm going to title this podcast, Misery is the Primary Driver of Hypertrophy. Yes, by all means, it's going to be amazing. And then people are going to have no idea what we're talking about because for the first 45 minutes, we're talking right. about like steroids and IQ and life. Yeah. Right, right. All right, man. Well, thank you for taking the time. As always, I, I really enjoy talking with you and getting you on the podcast. I'm sure people know where to find you, but if they don't, where can people find more of your work? Uh, YouTube is the place now. Uh, Renaissance Periodization. If you don't know how to spell that, which I don't, they just type in Dr. Mike Muscle or Dr. Mike Hypertrophy uh, into Pornhub. Just kidding. Type that into, I don't know what will come up there. Uh, come, uh, just uh, type that into YouTube and you'll see RP red and black logo and we put out four or five videos a week and uh, most of them are informative some of them have my awful attempts at humor because i have no friends dave and i have to joke with somebody it might as well be a camera there you go that's not yeah. thanks again man thank you so much